you know, I got like this weird thing and I don't know why I do it, but like a lot of times when I'm making work about my family, it's almost all printmaking. And to me, printmaking is very, um, is rugged. You know, you working, you redacting things, you know, it's like physical. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. Family is legacy. And when you get to make your art about the people you love, you create something special. Today we got the fam from Sean Rucker talking about his new printmaking show, Up From The Red Clay, debuted at M Contemporary Art in Detroit. Still on display through May 1st. I mean, but it's already sold out. You can't get a piece, but <laughs> you go check it out. I get a feel for that lushness. You know what I'm saying? Get on the waiting list right now. <laughs> Maybe you could get one of the next ones. This episode, we talked to Ruck about his printmaking, the significance of some of the colors, and the people, the people that he's using in the thing. It's a really, really great story, uh, the inspiration behind this whole thing. We get into some of them Carolina stories, reflect on small-town rural life. We go back and forth, and <laughs> maybe a little too much for some people, but it's just two country boys talking on the podcast. Reflect on that small-town life and the importance of family, especially in this pandemic, you know, with, with COVID keeping us apart. Uh, we talk about that a little bit coming up. It's Studio Noise. We got new music, new logo, new website, studionoisepodcast.com. But it's the same mission. We lift up and highlight all the voices of black art, all the contemporary black artists that you want to know that you need to know. You're going to find them right here on Studio Noise. Join the Studio Noise Patreon to keep us going. I got big plans for the podcast coming up this season. So if you listen to this and you feel like giving, helping the podcast keep going, you know, I appreciate it. And for your troubles, I'll give you some Patreon-exclusive content like this extended episode of this podcast. You know, me and Ruck just get to going, <laughs> just get to talking. Uh, so we tell more stories, we talk more about his future plans, and a lot of other things available only on Patreon, so you can check that out. And right now, you can go ahead and call two art lovers. Go let them know the noise is back. And after the break, we got the fam with Sean Rucker on the podcast. It's the noise, baby. Be back. This is Phyllis Stevens, an American quilt maker, and you're listening to Studio Noise. All right, yes, it's Studio Noise. We back with the fam, Mr. Rashawn Rucker, coming back to the podcast. What's up, man? What's going on, man? Glad to be here. I, I love coming on Studio Noise and chopping it up. You know, it's just like talking to old friends. That's right, yo. That's that's right, yo. You the fam. Like, so my man, like you've been, I've been down in my thesis for a little while, but now we back, man. This whole time I've been gone, man. Me and you have been talking. You've been working on this show. Up from the Red Clay, man, debuted at M Contemporary Art in Detroit, March 26th. It'll be, it should, it'll be up till May 1st. So you'll get, you can catch after you listen to this episode, you catch a little bit of it before you get that. But don't worry, it's already sold out. <laughs> All you can do is get on the waiting list for the next one. <laughs> yeah, man. So how'd you feel when the show went up, man? Oh man, it's it's funny because I always uh, tell people when you work in your house like I do, you work in the house too, and it's like you working on pieces and they kind of just stacked up on top of each other. You can't yeah. really get a vibe for it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I took the work to Melanie at the gallery and dropped it off, and then she took it to the framer. And so, when I came back in the day before the opening, they had hung it, and I was like, oh snap. <laughs> I was like, look completely look, different. I was like, this look real good. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like because you get a different vibe when you see it framed and hung. Yeah, that's because like, that's for sure. like, man, at my crib, I'm working like I basically turn my living room into my working studio, and then turn another room into like the living room. And so when that stuff is just stacked up, you know, and I'm carving that stuff, you got linoleum everywhere. You know, yeah. this is like you can't really get a real feel for it yeah yeah so, well, you put them on the white walls to clean it up yeah and it was it was like a, a little it was like a process 
to feeling really good about it because you go from carving it, you feeling good about the carving, then you go to printing it, you feeling good about the prints. Mm-hmm. And when you see the framing and you see it hung, it's like, okay, this not the whole triple thing that the, the effect that came in. Yeah, that's it right there. That you need that last piece, man. I always tell artists, uh, that presentation, man. You gotta focus on that presentation. It it do have to work for you already. Yeah, man. I'm a, I'm a stickler about that, about how things are hung and how they're presented and framed. And uh, printmaking is just so fickle in itself, even though I, I have a love affair with it. Mm-hmm. It drives me crazy because, like, I, I, I think I'm just, like, so heavily focused when I'm when I'm carving because, as you know, bro, one false move. That's it, yeah. <laughs> so done deal. You start, you start, start all over again. again. With a new piece, yeah. <laughs> I know that's right. See, that's how you. That's but that's also uh, the thing about printmaking that I love is that you got to work it in. You know what I mean? Because yeah. because it's because no one stroke will ruin it. It's like so you can still got time to like yeah. finesse it and make it make it seem like you meant to do it. And then I like I always say, man, if you don't never tell nobody it was a mistake, everybody think you a genius, well, yo. I can go <laughs> to every carving and, and print out. I can go to every carving and print out ten bad marks. Yeah, easy. like you said, you got the, the <laughs> trick is to figure out. The trick is to figure out how to camouflage it, how to work with it when you do make mm-hmm. a bad mark. Yeah, like yeah. how can I make this work now? Yeah, we got to be loose when you when you, especially when you're doing carving, man, because it's like you said, that joint is permanent. Yeah. Like you take that wood out, it ain't no real way. I mean, you can glue it back in if you feel like it. <laughs> it's no. hard, and you still see it. You know what I mean? You still yeah. when you print it, you still see it. Like we we see it. I don't think the person in the gallery see it, but we see it. We be like, man, that's why I took that divot, that chunk. Yeah, it's like a out. like a bright red light sitting yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna read this from your from your catalog, man. You got Wanda Williams, more studio noise fan. What's up, Wanda? Uh Pick for up. everything that she do. She wrote a, a nice little intro essay for you. Uh I'm gonna read this from it. From the red clay of North Carolina, black stories have been birthed and woven through time and distance through tragedy and triumph, through whispers and yells, through church pews, train cars, daffing through birth again. Up from the red clay is a conversation between Rucker's past self and future self, his family who lived and passed on, his family thousands of miles away, his sons and future generations. That's powerful stuff, man. Wanda, why you don't never write for me like this? Like I need something. <laughs> I need something like that. It's that's, funny. That's pretty, that's pretty. That's pretty tight right there. I didn't know you were gonna read that part, but that's the part when I read the whole essay. That part hit me like a sledgehammer. Like, yeah, oh. that's the that's the it, man. That's that feeling, yeah. man. That's the I was feeling like, right there. I, look, the funny thing was, <laughs> I love her to death. The funny thing was, she sent me the essay and was like, "Yo, it's finished. Like, I want you to read it." Bro, I text her like midnight. I was like, "I know I shouldn't be texting you this late." <laughs> This is dope. <laughs> like, like I felt like a whole vibe. Like I was like, man, like I can't believe she did this. Like it's just that good. And so like, man, I was excited that you even pulled that part out of it. Yeah, we was talking about one. I was asking you, like, like I was saying that when you're working, you don't even see what your all the work looks like. So when somebody sees it. Like all they see is the finished product, and then like you can see all the little connections that's in between it from all the different pieces. And while you're working, you don't see it. So like, what was it like getting Wana to to put that in words for you? Bro, it was incredible. Like she sent me that essay, and I told you it was like late at night, and I read it. I'm like, man, I know I ain't supposed to call nobody at midnight. <laughs> but I text her like, yo, this is incredible, yo. This is like, this is amazing. Cause it really brought together all my thoughts. Right. And we, you know, we talked about it, but like, I mean, she's just a great curator and writer. Like we didn't, we talked about it, but then like when I saw what she wrote, I really felt like she captured me. Yeah. Yeah. And I captured think so the body of work I was trying to produce. I think so too. And I think she, she connected a bunch of the different threads that you had going on too. Like, especially that part about, um, talking to your past self you know what i mean because i mean let's take it on back man like where's the inspiration for this show man you say you used to spend your time in warrington anybody know warrington littleton north carolina man that's what we talk about you it's two carolina boys 
<laughs> on the podcast today, giving it up. Like, so yeah, tell tell us about what it was like back in Warrington, man. I mean, so I, I was born in Winston-Salem, but my dad's side of the family is from Warrington. And so I would spend like a lot of time in Warrington, holidays, summers. And um, Warrington was just like, man, it felt like, it just felt like love, bro. Even though, it, even though as a place, it was stuck back in time, you know, mm-hmm. some things when you talk about like social issues and things like that. But just my family there felt like love. Like it was just warm and encompassing. And like, you know, you're talking about helping your granddaddy fix the lawnmower, you know, watching your grandma, you know, watching your grandma and your, and your aunties like shell beans and all that other stuff. Like, you know, drinking that sun tea on the porch, <laughs> you know, it, that was the type of vibe, you know, that it had. And um, I tried to kind of recreate some of that in the work, but like, man, living in Warrington was like, you know, I would work in my granddad's family business and then like in the evenings, man, me and my cousins, we would go fishing for bluegills, nah. go catch crawfish, nah, you know, go. and it, it was just like, <laughs> I felt like, it's funny because you remember that movie, uh, Stand By Me? Yeah. It was like the kids are like on yeah. these trips. Yeah. I felt like that's how me and my friends and cousins was living like. You getting on a bike and you, man, your parents don't even know or your grandparents like, man, you on a bike, you six, seven miles away from the house. <laughs> on a bike with your friends, like fishing at a pond. Yeah. Just where, ride. You know, just ride, just, you know, living that life. And it's like, I remember, bro, we would go, like, we would make some bologna sandwiches at the crib, stop by the store, get a new grape, some peanuts, and a pack of nabs, <laughs> and like ride our bike somewhere to go fishing. And, bro, we would just stay out there like all day, listening to my little music, you know. Eat my bologna sandwich, eat, drinking that cheer wine, and watching out for snakes. <laughs> That's the life, man. That's the life. <laughs> bro, I mean, they don't know nothing about, like, some of them do, but it's like, bro, we would go fishing sometime and get rags and dip them in kerosene and tie them around our ankles to keep the ticks off of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you always got to check for ticks when you finish, man. Yeah, they, was, they'll get on you. They'll get on my, you easy. My grandma used to be like, she had a back porch. She'd be like, man, y'all take off y'all clothes back there and look for ticks for y'all coming in this house. Yeah, like, she wanted want you to take the clothes. Yeah, she didn't want them. I don't bring no ticks in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Was, that's good fun times, man. Yeah, riding your was, bike. Now, how much, how big was your family like around there? And, and this, is, man, this, is a, this is a weird question because, you know, in, in rural North Carolina, like everybody family, like somehow you connected to somebody all the time. So it'd be about a hundred people. Yeah. It'd be about a hundred yeah. people. That's all related. It was a big family. And, and actually like what I saw was what I say, probably typical of Warrington, Littleton in that area. Like we all lived around each other. Mm-hmm. So at my great grandparents' house where I would stay at most of the time, my great aunt, which was her, my great grandma's sister lived next door. Her brother, uncle Doc lived across the street. My yep. grandma and granddad lived probably a mile down the street. My uncle lived probably a mile down the other way. Like everybody stayed like pretty close to each other. Everybody pretty much stayed on the Baltimore Road. Yeah. And, yeah. And ain't, nothing, like, ain't nothing to just pop up at somebody's house. Yeah. Like, like it was your house. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's that feeling of family when you talk about uh, that love, man. Like it, it's the togetherness that you had. You know what I mean? Bro. We would sit on the porch, like, this is no lie. We would sit on the porch and be drinking tea and helping my grandma, like, you know, snap beans and stuff. And it was like, bro, we would do that all day and just wave at everybody who drove by. And they would wave back. <laughs> yeah. And my grandma would be like, she'd get mad if I didn't wave. She'd be like, you see that man waving too? i like, I wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to miss a car or two. And it was like. But the funny thing was some people would just pull over, bro. They wouldn't even get out of the car. Yeah. They would just pull yeah. up to the front of the house and be on the side of the road now by the ditch talking to my grunt, my great grandma through the window. Yeah. That's they how you had to do it. Like, or sometimes they pull over and have something. I had a cousin, Eddie, who was a farmer who lived down the way. He would pull up almost at least twice a week. He yell, you know, he was like, Hey, Sal. He'd be like, Sean, come on here and get these collars for your grandma. I, a lot. He said, they came, they came good this year. I got more than I need. 
So he would always bring stuff that like grew double or triple whatever he thought. Yeah. You know, because that was his job was like he would sell vegetables on the truck. So he would pull up, you know, one of the prints I didn't get to do, but it was like one of those things I think about all the time was like at my aunt's house next door, my great aunt. It was like this big oak tree. And that's where all the men used to gather. And they'd be drinking beer and telling stories. It'd be like listening to Mudbone or something. Like I would yeah. go out there as a kid and just sit around because I wanted to hear the craziness. Yeah. And sometimes they'd be out there, man. They'd be four or five of them. They all in their car with the door open, <laughs> sitting in the car talking. They're not even sitting near each other. They sitting in the individual cars talking. Yeah. Or they sitting in a broke down car that somebody used to have. <laughs> And that's like, you would just go out there and be like, man, they in, the, they in there smoking cools and drinking beer and like the broke down yeah. car. Yeah. And I get in the back seat and just be ear hustling. Like, be like, <laughs> man, these are like the great, I would think those are the greatest stories I ever heard, bro. Yeah. Cause like, that's, that's, that's their real that. life, man. There was a, it was a lot of real life, a lot of knowledge being, being spread, yo. And just, you know, the way we relate to each other, you know what I mean? It's nothing like that, that down home country talk that you get to somebody else, man. And that's kind of the genesis for the for the yeah, series. Yeah, I, I know you said you got some pictures from your yeah. from your grandma sent you a bunch of pictures. Like tell us about that. Yeah. She so I wanted to work on it. I mean, I've been thinking about this series of printmaking for like probably two years. And uh just every time going to my grandma's house in Warrington, like she always had like a bunch of photo albums and a foot locker full of photos and I had been telling her about what I wanted her to do and eventually, you know, even through COVID, she eventually was able to get around and send me pictures. She probably sent me like three or 400 pictures. And I kind of used that as source material. And like, so the day I got them, I started going through editing them, you know, putting them in piles. Like this might work, this might not work. You know, mm-hmm. this definite no. Mm-hmm. Then I went and bought about 12 photo albums and organized all of it. And then I had like one photo album that was like, this is the photo album I work from completely. And so it was cool. And it was also cool, man, not even from the standpoint of necessarily making work, but just to be able to go through your family's history visually like that, Mm -hmm. to be able to see people like you didn't even know, bro. Like, you know, you'd be like, man, this is, this is insane. Like, I mean, one of the things I didn't get around to doing either because it just became a time crunch was, um, it was a picture from the 1940s of my cousins like eight men and they founded a church in Lewisburg mm. and it was like I wanted to do that picture but I knew it was going to be like a five foot carbon oh, so I was wow, like, I'm yeah. gonna get around. I was like I'm going to get back around to that at some point they all got like black suits on white shirts black ties oh yeah that's they, made for a print and, right there and the four of them were sitting in a chair with their legs crossed and the other four standing behind them and they all brothers but they were our cousins Man, that's an awesome picture, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, man. it's a it's a so, dope picture. So how how long you think the what's the timeline on these pictures? Like like if they got one from nineteen forties, is it all the way till current, or was this back when you was a child? Uh, the pictures went from nineteen forty two to present. So the oldest that's picture was right of my great grandfather working at the Texaco station in nineteen forty two. He used to be a mechanic at the Texaco station and pump gas for people when they would pull up. Wow. And it's crazy because I never, I didn't do that piece because I actually commissioned another artist here to do it, uh, to produce that piece for me in their own vibe. Wow. So my grandfather had like the zip up, you know, the one piece zip up suit, mechanic suit. Yeah. With yeah. his name, he had a shirt and he had a, and he had a bow tie on. <laughs> a shirt and a bow tie with a little, it looked like a police hat, but it had a Texaco symbol on it. Wow. <laughs> and that's what he used to do. He was a mechanic at Texaco, and he would do like small engine repair, and he would like pump gas because, you know, back then most of the service stations were like full service. Yeah, full service. Yeah. You just yeah, they up. check your oil and everything. Yeah, that's what he was saying. He's like, I used to check people oil and windshield wipers, and I might wash their windshield for them and put the gas in there. They'd be on their way. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. It's still a couple of them joints around me. Like it's funny. It's like one around me, like a full service joint. Yeah, that's old school, right there, man. So how many? How many in all? How many family members do you think you covered in the in the course of the show? Like probably twenty. Twenty. How many? Tell people how many princes in the show. I think there were twenty-two different works in the mm-hmm. show. And that includes the relief, uh, the, mono the relief, prints, and the mono prints, the drawn in it. 
Uh, two drawings. Yeah, two, two drawings. drawings. Two drawings, two collages, uh, reliefs, and monoprints. That's what's up, man. Now, now, one thing we didn't, I didn't ask you is, you know, they can go back and listen to the last episode where you got your American Horror Anthology series was graphite drawings of men and pigeons and all the context that come with that. So why was this idea meant for printmaking and not drawing? Dude, you know, I got like this weird thing and I don't know why I do it, but like a lot of times when I'm making work about my family, it's almost all printmaking because it's almost all about the rural South. And for some reason, when I think printmaking, mm. I just think South. Like, I just think, I don't know, it's like, it's like the, the, the folk story behind it. And to me, printmaking is very, um, it's rugged. You know, you working, you redacting things, you know, it's like physical. Yeah. And when I yeah. think about that, I think about the hard work that we talked about, you know, like shoot, half the men I knew was working at, at sawmills and paper mills. And, yeah. You know, I would tell, I told somebody that you would see dudes, they had like their shoulders would be completely scarred up. And it's because they've been carrying logs at the Puckwood factory mm, yeah. for a living. And it's yeah. like, when I think about that, for some reason, printmaking and the physicality of it always kind of encompasses the work I do about my family. Yeah. And and it, it feels older, right? It feels weathered. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, it has that it has that um the chatter to it, you know what I mean? If you ink it right, it has like that little bit of noise in it. Like yeah. it, it is something about that feeling. It feels like you know what it feels like? It feels like one of those illustrations from a Bible. You yeah. know what I mean? It feels like that type of stuff. Like it's a history that's being told. And it's funny because um even though of course we know there's printmakers, I'm a printmaker, you're a printmaker, we know plenty of printmakers, but Every time people come to a show, they're like, I don't ever see printmaking no more. <laughs> <laughs> so it is something it is something like cool about it that is not necessarily a thing that's done a ton. Yeah, yeah. It's a physicality, like you said, that that's involved in it. So I'm gonna jump into one of the prints, man. One of the first ones I think you made a show me was Burdens Down Lord. Uh, yeah. it's, it's your man sitting on a sitting on a stool. Like, tell us about this picture and tell us about the process. Uh, that was my that was my uh, great uncle John. I think it was from 1949, and it was him sitting in front of his shotgun house. But I, for the drawing, I actually took the house out and just drew him, and um, and I called it "Burdens Down, Lord," because I just thought about like. That was like his house and his land. And I just thought, man, like, man, what was he going through being black in 1949 and, you mm. know, and being proud of that shotgun house and like finally having some of his own. And yeah. so when I saw him sitting in the chair, it was kind of like his body language kind of gave off that thing, like, burdens down, Lord, like the old song, like, mm -hmm. I laid my burdens down, you know. You know, because if you learn that song, it's like, you know, the next line, like, I feel better, so much better. And so, like, since I laid my burden out, so that made me think about it. Like, a lot of this stuff was built just on church and going to church a lot at once and then just thinking about how that gospel music and those hymns kind of interacted with the titles and the themes and the work that I wanted to do because I knew how Uncle John had struggled and he had been a sharecropper. He had done, you know, doing all the work that most black people in America had to do. And that picture just like gave me like, he had like this look of satisfaction sitting in that right. chair. Right. He got him some so land. Got, yeah. I got, got this look of rest about him. Like I got a house and you know, I, got, I got like some, some semblance of satisfaction and normalcy. Yeah. Well, me, you, me, you talk about it all the time. It's like, sometimes we think about the people back home and it's like, in terms of dreams, like we had dreams to be an artist, like they had dreams to get them some land. You know what yeah. I'm saying? That was, that was like the pinnacle. Like, oh man, you got you some land? Like, yeah, what? Get a, get a couple acres and a, a yeah. little double wide or a little, yeah. house, a little brick house. Like, oh man, you done made it. <laughs> that what they used to think, man. It's like, yeah. yo, you got you some land? That's the ultimate, yo. Like, it can't get I, no better than get you a couple acres, you know? Man, I remember folks like, and it left an impression on me. I remember folks talking like that. I remember folks saying, like, man, you know, Johnny didn't build him a house. He built a brick house, too. Like, having a brick <laughs> house was, like, a huge thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, you know, and just 
that it kind of gave me that type of vibe looking at that picture of my great uncle. Yeah, I think and that was awesome. Yeah, a lot of those men I knew, you know, back then they they were also brick masons. They were building their own houses, and, mm, you know, yeah. doing all these different things. Yeah. Like, I can't tell you the amount of people I know who built their own house in Warrington. And you know, on one hand, you had to, right? Because now we talk about these little towns. It's like this. It's not like like Atlanta now, like you can find somebody to build you a house. Like it's mad people contracts that'll build you a house. Everybody got an LLC and they can do stuff to your house. But I mean, you talk about Littleton, North Carolina, it might be a thousand people like counting yeah. the kids, like in the whole, in the whole town. Like what's the odds you're going to have like one or two people, like even two people that have the skills yeah. to be able to build you a house. So a lot of this is you got to make a way out of no way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like I, that, I think, that old thing. I think Warrington, like, I got to look back, but I think one of the last numbers I saw was like 1,400 people. And in my mind, I'm always like, it can't be that small. But it probably is. Like, yeah, it probably is, yeah. I just yeah. don't ever feel like it's that small. But you're right. It's like I had a cousin, Charles Davis, and he was a contractor. He lived in Warrington. And it was like the few people who were like legit contractors, they was doing like real work in like Raleigh and Durham like they yeah. wasn't doing work they were like he mostly did his work in the cities yeah he just lived in Warrington so like like you said like he you know he was doing that and then I think what happened was like people who had that skill set they were carpenters or brick masons they built their own houses but they built them like on their off time you know yeah. I would see I would see a dude build a house for like two three years and get like yeah. a regular job yeah. And then on the weekend, you know, him and his homeboys get together and, you know, one might be a brick mason, one might be a carpenter, one might be a plumber. They just piece by piece put the house together. Yeah. We used to do that with uh with porches and sheds. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Somebody like, yo, you, you need a shed? Like, yo, we going, you know what I'm saying? The weekend out the next because I ain't got nothing to do. You know, yeah. then we <laughs> get together and put it together. You know, because it, it was a community, man. It was exactly. that, this whole point where nobody's coming. Like, this is us. Like, this 1,000 people is all the people that we know. So, sure. you know, between us, like, either you're going to not have a porch, you're going to keep that hole in your steps, or somebody got to yeah. come and help you. You know what I mean? Because sure. eventually, you know, you're going to need help. And it's that, it's that whole sense of community, man, that, that is missing a lot of times in a, in a lot of cities. And that's, that's what the work is about. Like, you see the dudes pull up in a car with the concrete bags in the trunk and the, yeah. the five-gallon buckets that mix with it, and they be a brick mason, they'll just jump out and be like, man, I got to go ahead and build this roof and some new steps. Yeah. <laughs> and they just go over there and knock it out on the weekend. Yeah, just go ahead and do it. She fix them from food, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Bring them a plate while he Give out there. Give them a plate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sweet tea. Yeah, that's like good living. That, that was how everything was set up. It was like a you know, it was kind of a trade system because we had like my grand, my great grandfather had like four or five pecan trees in the yard, and bro, he would have us out there picking up the pecans, and he would sit there and oh, like yeah. bag, he would sit there and bag them up, and then he put them in the car, and man, everywhere he went, when he saw a friend, he would give him a bag of pecans, like I just got these out the yard, and it was yeah. like, like you said, it was like that community vibe or that or that type of that give and take where everybody was trying to help each other. Yeah, because, and a lot of it is like, yo, I remember my pops used to, we used to find blackberry bushes. And so it's like, oh man, we take these, we just gonna get some blackberries. It's like, yo, put these up. I'm gonna take them over here and see if I get her to make me some cobbler, some blackberry cobbler, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's that type of thing where it's like, it's not just, it's not just yours, like it's ours. Like, you know, like like all of us, like you get some, you jump out, get some peanuts from the side of the road. We talk about pulling up in the truck. Like yeah. you pull up in the trunk, open the trunk. It's like, yo, trash bags of peanuts. Like, yo, we going to have some peanuts, about to roll some of these peanuts up, right? And it's just like, you never know what the day was going to be. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Like you just wake shit. up, you wake up thinking you're just going to sit around the house. Like next thing you know, you roasting, pe- <laughs> roasting peanuts <laughs> and playing ball. It's like, you know, it's, it's a good living, man. I know people might be sick of listening to us, like reminisce like that, but it's not often I get to talk to somebody that that been there. You know what I mean? Like it's like Bro, we, like we been on those streets it. with the bike. You know what I'm saying? Riding yeah. for like five miles just to go to the store, give me a hug and some and a yeah. little Debbie. 
We used to play uh we used to play basketball on that red clay. Oh, we didn't man. have no country, but the the ball was we played so much that the grass was gone and the dirt yeah. and the clay was super hard. It's cleared out, yeah. And bro, we used to play on a goal that was attached to a tree. <laughs> you got so to, man. Like, yeah. So I had a bungee cord attached to my tree to keep the pole up, man, because the pole was because uh, my man Antoine dunked too hard one time <laughs> and he bent the thing out of the ground. So we had to attach it to the tree. <laughs> yeah, we would be out there playing. And it's like, man, you would come in with your shoes and it's like your shoes would be straight red. Yeah. Because you've been out there playing in the red. Yeah. Clay and, I, and that's, man, that's all this show was about. It was, I was telling somebody, it just was me really giving my flowers to the place and to the people. Hey, this is Yeshua Kloss. I'm a visual artist from Chicago, living in Brooklyn, doing my thing thing, how I do it. And you are now listening to Studio Noise. And so we talk about that red, one of the characteristics in, in a lot of these prints is some black and white, but some had this great, man. This, ooh, this is awesome red color that you put into it, man. How, how did you get that color and kind of talk a little bit more about the significance of it? Man, well, I knew I wanted to, man, I had this, the name for the show up for the Red Clay for like over a year. I knew I wanted that to be the title, and I knew I wanted to incorporate Red in some kind of places, but I want to say I'm pretty sure that it was an old Margaret Burroughs print that I saw mm. that had like a little slice of red in it, and it made me think like, I need to try this. I need to like see what, how this is going to work on like a large scale where I'm putting like, you know, these flat reds in there with the black on top. Mm -hmm. And uh, the funny thing was I, can't, I couldn't really find a lot of examples like that with printmaking. So I started looking at paintings, started looking at drawings and other things that was incorporating red and black like that. And I was like, this might work. So the, by the time I first, by the time I saw the first one, which was Burton's Down, I was like, Man, this is like intense. Like I gotta, I gotta keep this going. So when yeah. I did that, I, I knew like immediately, like I needed the mono prints, the monotypes to be red, and I knew when I wanted to put a drawing or two in it, like I need to use red pencils for the drawing as well because I wanted to keep that theme throughout the show. Right, and I think it's interesting how you chose to not carved the red at all like you used it as just a, a straight flat background yeah. no details no second level of of nothing inside of it like where why why did you figure to do that just a straight simple two colors because i just thought because the red in it and, and i'm gonna interject for a minute but yeah. the red when you print it i'm looking at the ghost of new bethel right it's the hand with the church with, fan the church fan, with yeah. mlk on it and when you look at it, that red is so overwhelming. Like it joins the whole piece. It just floods it almost. So that to me is a stylistic choice, but ex explain it a little bit to me. That is definitely a stylistic choice. I wanted the red to just, to just merge with the black. I really, even though it's a two color print, I thought of it as a one color. Mm. That's how I was thinking about it. Right. I'm like, I don't want to carve anything into this red. I just want it to be flats. And I just want the red to push the black even further. And this is really the first time of anybody who knows my work, and you know my printmaking work, and I've used color ever. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm just using black such a... and white old school, dude. I mean, I'm with you, man. I, I did the same thing, man. I only just started dabbling with color. but Because it, it's something so striking about it, man. Like, it we talked about a little bit about the simplicity of just the black and white image. Like, what can you do? How can you make value with just black? You know what I mean? So part of it is the challenge of that and the look that you get, this kind of graphic look. Um, but another thing is like, were you using black? And I did this for a long time, using black as a cipher for blackness, right? The, oh, yeah. the how we relate to each other as a people. I think it was for, probably for two reasons for me for it to represent blackness. And then the second reason was it always had a, like a graphic novel nature to it. To me. Mm, right. 
and I, you know, he was comic book fan. He was, you know, I mean, at, at the core, I might be, by some people, it's funny, some people here in Detroit identify me as an illustrator. Because I think even some people, when they look at the printmaking, they're like, it's got such a graphic, striking look to it that it looks like it would almost be like a magazine cover or like a, that type of that type of vibe. I can and see so that. The black is um is always used, you know, for that second reason of just I love the way like you know Kyle Wise's name is escaping me now. The the dude behind Sin City and you know Frank Miller. Frank Miller. Frank Miller's work always kind of struck me. And so that was another reason I kind of just like the simple black and white process of printmaking. Now I can see how uh, it can get to, especially because you're telling these narratives with your pieces, it can seem like illustrative. Like think of a piece uh, from the show, The Procession, right? Where you have yeah. the men like holding the, holding the casket up. Like that seems like in the story is implied because you're focusing on and all the activity that's going on at a wake. Like you're focusing in on these two particular men. It feels like there's a story behind like why they'll focus on who is it and kind of what was this funeral that was that was going on. Actually, it's funny because that was the one thing and there's not a not a photo reference. That's actually from my kind of memory is that the person in the rear is me when I was about eighteen or nineteen, mm. and I've been a pallbearer for all of my grandfather's funerals. So both grandfathers and my great grandfather, I've been a pallbearer, mm. and just in that mindset of like thinking about. You're taking somebody to their final, you know, resting place on earth. And I always just think about like, you know, carrying them, but I also think about how many times they carry me as a person. Right. Yeah. Because my grandfather was so integral in my upbringing. Yeah, that's powerful, man. And it's the same way when you look at um, the coronation piece, like I think me having 20 years as a journalist, I think my artwork does have a narrative storytelling aspect to it. Because I just, I've spent 20 years of my life telling stories through photographs. Right. And so that's why I'm kind of not surprised when people just kind of identify me as an illustrator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's like, I know it does have like illustrative qualities to it. Because I'm always trying to tell a narrative. Uh, one piece in the show that you got uh, before the throne. That's a, one of the one of the, uh, the drawings. The drawings yeah. in the show, right? So yeah. this one is is definitely built for a narrative because you have these two. I'm assuming these are grandparents. Great grandparents. Yeah, yeah, great grandparents just sitting on the chair, like you know, everybody's seen a chair like that at the house too. You know, what I'm saying you get that chair like that, you hot cotton. You know, what I mean, yeah. like damn man, you got where you get this chair from? Like that's nice. Yeah. They could probably still got the plastic on it. Yeah, you know it was man? one of those. Uh, it was one of those '80s floral couches. Yeah, <laughs> and they were. And it's funny because they were actually at my grandmother's house, which is their daughter, uh, doing a Christmas in the early '80s. That's where the photo reference came from. But what's funny, my grandparent, my great grandparents in that picture had a couch similar to them, but theirs had plastic on it. Yeah, and they had plastic runners all through the house, everywhere through you know through the living room because you didn't go in the living room unless it was a holiday. Yeah, there wasn't a room that you. That was not a room you sat in. Yeah, I want you to mess know, up the floors, man. As, as we say, up. you know, what you doing in the front room? You don't be in the front room, you know, unless it's, unless you got people over and it's an event. Yeah, yeah. And um, the reason I called it before the throne because they were like the royalty of our family, the matriarch, the patriarch. It was like I felt like people spent their whole lives just trying not to ever embarrass them. Mm. And so when I saw the picture, it was like such a stately pose on that floral couch. Yeah. And they were kind of holding hands and it was like, man, they look like the king and queen. At least they my king and queen. Yeah. So that's how that how that title came about before the throne. How many kids did they have? Five. Five, okay. Yeah. Which really ain't even a big family when you think about it back in the day. I mean, that's how many in my family. And I, I consider it to be a, a nice size. <laughs> well, to me, I mean, to yeah. me it's huge. But, you know, back in then in Warrington, like, people had land and they were farming. So, you know, my grandma was like, people were having kids just for help. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. You know, you see families with like eight and nine kids. And it's like, 
they needed help on the phone. <laughs> yeah, like, my my wife got uh, her grandma had thirteen kids. Yeah, and man. I, I think I think her her father had like another ten. Like they have a huge family. Like they take up a whole section of uh, infield, not infield, uh, Emporia in Virginia. <laughs> so like it's all the all them areas, man. It's like. It, you live there, you know what I'm saying? And these are the people that's there, man. I think you captured their stories like well, man. Like it's amazing. Uh, tell me about, I'm going to dabble into these monoprints right quick. Tell me about the feelings about the monoprints because they have a completely different feel. And if you, if y'all see them, make sure y'all go check out Ruck's site and, and check out these monoprints. Uh, I, I find them striking because there's a sharpness to like every other piece. And these monoprints are just about the flow, like just about, like imagine if you just you stepped in some mud and like you just make a footprint and like you see an image inside of it. That's what I think of a little bit when I look at it. Like tell me about the process of of making that and kind of switching your mind frame because it's no level of detail and you are big on detail, right? Like you you all you get all into all the nooks and crannies of faces and all that kind of stuff. And now you have these very loose kind of circular pieces. Tell me about it. Well, I think one of the things I wanted to do was. Um... I've always been fascinated with painting, even though I'm not a painter by any stretch of imagination. Like I've never even really dabbled in painting. And I was like, man, I want to kind of like stretch myself a little bit. And the first thing you think about the printmaker is doing these monotypes because you can get like a painterly effect. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I had done one since college. And it was, um, you know, I wanted to do something that had a real immediate immediacy to it where you just like, I'm gonna paint this on this plexiglass, put this paper on it, and then pull it off, and then whatever there is just there. Yeah. Because like there was barely any ink for a ghost image, you know. Some people made ghost prints. Like I didn't even do the ghost prints because like there was so little ink left on the plates. But I wanted it to be something where you just got a feeling for it. Like I just want you to feel these, and it's not, and it don't have to be perfect, mm -hmm. you know. And so that was kind of my approach with it, and I was like, and also. I'm real, I'm real like particular about giving our community access to fine art. So whenever I have a show, I always want to do a small, you know, some smaller pieces for people who just beginning to get into art mm -hmm. or who want to start their collection. And so the monotypes is one of those things where it's like it was a twofold win because it was like I could experiment in ways I needed to, but I could also give access to our community because at some point as an artist, like, it always kind of bugged me. It's like, you got to make a living in, as an artist, but at some point, a lot of times, our work will get to prices where like the average person can't buy it. Yeah, that's true. And and it's like, I kind of want to always have something like that for like people to have access because I know growing up, I mean, outside of, you know, my two cousins who were artists and like me, like my family wasn't buying art. We didn't have no money for that. You know, nobody was going out. You know, I think the first time somebody in my family bought something, it was the Charles Bibbs, and it was like a print that might have been like $700, and that was a ton of money. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. So, a lot. you know, if you, if you like thinking about people like, you know, your work started getting a four or five figures, and so you like, you, the higher you go, the smaller the, the circle of people who, who were there and had the ability to buy it. Yeah, and the further outside community you got to go. Exactly. And so, you know, shit, I want the dude to drive the bus to be able to buy something just like a real art collector. It's like, I want to give him a pathway to becoming a collector as well. Yeah. You know, and then sit in the house and be like, it's real artwork in the house. Yeah. And it feels a little different because uh, also the subject matter, a lot of these are just singular people almost like to, like the one Papa Chuck. Tell me about Papa Chuck and kind of what it meant. That was my grandfather. He um, passed away a few years back, but we always called him Papa. His first name was, and everybody else called him Chuck, who was, you know, if you knew him, you, he'd be like Mr. Chuck or whatever, but we called right. him Papa. And so I just kind of combined two names of Papa Chuck. But his signature look was always a trucker hat with the aviator glasses. <laughs> so when my grandma saw it, his, you know, his wife, she was like, I knew that was Chuck. As soon as I seen it, <laughs> I saw that hat, you know, and it was always the old school trucker hat with the little string across the top. Yeah. The little rope. Yeah. <laughs> and he always had like big aviator glasses. And, um, 
Because, you know, just paying homage to people who like really constructed my foundation as a human being. Yeah. Good people, man. Good. He always, you know, he never called me wrong. He always called me slow motion. All the grandkids <laughs> had nicknames and mine was slow motion. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's like, man, you ain't never in a hurry about <laughs> about doing nothing. And I, I mean, I'm kind of just that. That's the type of person I am. Because I remember one day, uh, like I said, my great-grandfather warranty, he had a landscaping business. He employed like a ton of people in the family and just some people who lived in Warrington. And he had, uh, he left me at a lady's house to cut her grass one day. And uh, he came back to get me up, <laughs> pick me up. And the lady was paying him at the door. And this particular lady had a huge yard. She wanted her yard to be pushed. She didn't want rides <laughs> in her yard. <laughs> She wanted that mother had a line, you know, like baseball yeah, field. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll never forget it, man. This lady, the older white lady, this lady, and this was like such a warranted southern thing. Like it kind of peed me, it kind of like pissed me off. But this lady made some tea, bro, and sat at the patio table and watched me cut her grass. <laughs> she had a pimento cheese sandwich and a sweet tea. And literally, she was fanning herself. She was watching me cut the grass. And I was like, because by this time, I'm 15 or 16, so I'm thinking like, man, this ain't some old roots type of <laughs> stuff going on. But I was just cutting the grass at my pace because I wanted to have lines and all that stuff. And when my granddad came back, because he went to another job site, he came back to get me and load the equipment up. And she paid him. I guess they was talking. I got back in the car and he said, that lady asked me, she, she told me that she didn't even think you was moving at one point. <laughs> I was like, what? She said, you're cutting the grass so slow. <laughs> and, and that's what uh, everything we talk about is what's wrapped up in this show. And um, it's just a lot of love in the show. You know, when, when they got hung that day, and I told you I saw it for the first time, FaceTime my grandmother who's in her 80s and it's like I was kind of like man she might not even hit the FaceTime button because sometimes she won't answer <laughs> she won't answer if I hit the FaceTime button but she did and I walked her through the gallery man and like she started crying as soon as she saw the first piece wow that's awesome man that's gotta be a it's, good feeling bro I was like at that point I was like I don't give a damn with nobody buy nothing like you know I didn't hit the mark yeah, that's it. You know, with my with my grandma, and so that you know, you got to think about. You know, I always tell artists, it's like you can't make work to sell. Like you got to make work because you love it. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you can't think of it as a thing where it's like selling gonna be your number one point. Yeah, because you know, it's like you got to make something that means something to you. And mean something, and that that makes it mean something to other people, right? Exactly. Because you put you put enough love into it that she felt it, you know what I'm saying? Just by the idea that, uh, and you know, art is about representation too. So just the idea that she never thought probably of herself as being the type of person that would be in artwork. You know Brooke, what I mean? She's in two pieces. And that's, that's like one of the big payoffs for me because the largest piece in the show, she's in that piece. And that piece was bought by Wake Forest University for their permanent collection. So I'm like, man, my grandma, my great grandfather's in there. My dad is in that quilt piece, Tapestry of My Soul. And my great grandfather, he only finished the second, the sixth grade. And I'm like, I'm thinking in my mind, like, this is dope because my family, particularly my great grandfather, who didn't even get to go to school because he had to work, is going to be in one of the most prestigious academic universities in the country. Mm. And I said, when I'm dead and gone, some kid going to be walking by a tapestry of my soul, looking at it in the library or wherever it's going to hang. And so I was super excited when they called about it. And um, it just won because it's my hometown and Winston-Salem and it's like family legacy. And, you know, looking through the catalog and it's like, it's going to be in there with Glenn Ligon and Whitfield Lovell and Keith Haring. It's going to be in there with an amazing artist, you know, Jasper yeah. Johns and that's good company. And I was just kind of like, man, my grandma going to be in there. When everybody dead and gone, bro, that printmaking quilt going to still be there. 
that's awesome, man. And that's that what is, it's about. That's yeah, the that's, legacy of it about, you know. That's real legacy right there. Yeah, you know what else I think bought this on? I was telling somebody I didn't really think about it in the the beginning of it, but I think COVID had a, you know a part played a part in this because I hadn't seen my family. I still haven't seen them in like a, over a year. Wow, man, I'm saying we, we haven't traveled, and you know my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer during COVID and had surgery to you know have her breast removed and had to go through all this by herself during COVID. Mm. Mm. And uh, you know just heard my stepdad and. I was kind of like, man, COVID is nothing else. It made you really realize like how fragile life was and you watch people pass from COVID and you watch people just lose family by the droves. Yeah. And it kind of was like, man, you know, I already had this idea of honoring my family, but like what a time to do it. Yeah. The perfect time. I think, I think it's, it's amazing how sometimes, like you said, you would think about this project for a while, but it lined up in just the right way at just the right moment for you to be able to make all the work that you're getting because who helped you print it? Like somebody who helped you print it? Cause let me tell you, let me tell y'all, I always tell Ruck, this guy, you gotta get off your floor, man. This guy, this guy is like so DIY. He's so warranting. This guy's like lining up his lino cuts with the floorboards <laughs> for registration. Like that's just is amazing. Like it's amazing that you ever get anything printed, bro. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth, man. It's awesome, but but well, you got man. you got some help for printing this time, man. Who helped you? Print so it? I gotta give, out, give I a gotta shout give, out. Yeah, I gotta give a shout out. So I did I did the monotypes and all the other some of the smaller stuff in my house, but normally, like you said, I just print on the floor. And Jamal and everybody else I know have been clowning me for years because <laughs> I've been making I've been making additions of like two and three because it's like when you're printing <laughs> with a doorknob on your floor, you can't make twenty five. That's hardcore, that man. Of, yeah, you can, but it's hardcore, and I'm, I'm not going to that level with it. Yeah, don't pop out arms by the end of that. Yeah, and so you know, I've been working the last couple projects I did with printmaking. I ended up doing, you know, AP at the crib, and then working with Lee Marshallonis, who is a master printmaker here. And so I worked with Lee on this project, and it was funny because even she was still like, "Dude, you working with a printer now?" Like. You still making addition to three? And I, was like, that's, I was like, that's just who I am. You know, she was kind of like, man, you, you know, we could make ten. She was like, she was like, ten is respectable. She was trying to convince me to, you know, she was like, <laughs> you know, Melanie would always say that at the gallery. She was like, man, you still doing those super small runs? But um, I always just kind of wanted to keep it that way to make them precious, and it was like, especially with this, because this is my family. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to keep it precious, and I wanted to know where they were going. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. I was like, you know, this is this is going to a place that I can like go see them if I want to, or you know, just know they're going to a good home. And, but yeah, Lee Lee is like incredible, man. Like I've been working with her for like the last year, and like you know, we're gonna continue to have a full full fledged relationship. You know, throughout my practice, I think. She used to be the master printmaker, signal return here, but now she's on her own. That's what's up. So, you know, she specializes in uh, lithographs, but we have yet to venture into that realm. I think you would do great with lithographs. Man, man. she's always like, she's always like, I can't believe you ain't never done lithographs. She's like, that's "That's right up somebody alley who can draw. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Especially like you get that, that graphite look that you got. Like man, you get yeah. you want them, them crayons in your hand, man. You be you be straight, man. Like it, it'll feel like it'll feel like you drawing on paper, like on your stone. I think you would kill it. I that that need to be on your list like immediately. It is. Like, it's, it's on my list for the things I'm gonna do within the next year. Yeah, I, I think you. So she already got that. like she got a ton of brand new stones. So she like yo, when you ready, let let me know. So are you gonna you so you gonna stick to this two print thing for like the rest of your career? Like this is gonna make you legendary. Like <laughs> like can't nobody get your press. They gotta line up like right now. <laughs> like get on the waiting list for the next project. I mean at Max I at Max I only ever see myself making five max. Nah, that's dope, man. That's dope. I mean, cause I, cause I've, I've limited myself to ten. Like ten is ten is kind of my number. Like if I feel like extra good. Like to be free, I printed nineteen of them. Like that's a lot yeah. for me. Like for me, <laughs> that's a whole lot, Joe. I don't. I don't. I, I tell people that I get. I got. 
kind of ADD or something. Cause like after I print like a couple of them, it's like I'm done. Like I don't need to like print the whole run. Well, that's the same thing. It's, it's also not me just wanting to be precious, which I do, but it's also my joy is in the carving. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm the same And way. I think all my happiness is in the carving. So once it's carved and I print a couple and I see them, then I'm done. I'm ready to move to the next carving. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, I think, that. I think that's part of it because I always tell people like, you know, and I think I've told you this before, like I tell people because they laugh about it. I say, man, what you see on the gallery wall, that's the residue of my joy. That's not my joy. You getting the residue. My joy is in the carving and the drawing. Yeah. That's that's the stuff that I got to do to make money. That <laughs> like that like the good stuff that you know in the studio, just uh, thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? That, yeah, that's that's like, the fun stuff, figuring it out. Because it's like it's it's a you always right there, man. You kind of get a good anxiety because it's like the next thing I do can completely trash this whole piece, or it can make it. You know what I'm saying? Belong in the MoMA somewhere. Yeah, and that's the thing I think too, like. When I was talking about making work, sell it. I think you also got to not make work just because you feel like, it's, you know, you can't make work and be like, oh, I'm going to make this because it's going to go in some institutional collection. Mm-hmm. You got to really just make what you love and like how you feel. You got to, you know, make the right work for you. Like, I'm never making work like, oh, my God, one day the DIA is going to buy this. It's like, I can't wait on their validation. Yeah. I got to make my work. Yeah, yeah I got to never get work. it. You know, and I always had this belief, you know, maybe because it comes from Warrington and my great-grandparents, you know, I always had this belief that, like, time time going to reveal everything. Yeah. You know, if it's meant for you, it's going to be meant for you, whether it's now, whether it's 10 years from now. And, you know, my grandma used to always tell me, you know, God got to wear a slow walking you down. Mm. <laughs> so at some point, your time going to come. That's good stuff, yo. And, and, and until then, you just do the work. You know, I always think about the interview you did with Deborah Roberts when she talked about working in the shoe store. Yeah. And then when she won the Poly Krasner and people started coming her way, she was like, I had a ton of work because I had been working with no recognition for decades. Yeah. So that's why I tell people, I'm like, you see these stories about these like hot artists and these meteoric rises. And I'm like, bro, you can't be a meteoric rise when you like, 60 <laughs> or 50 or something like that it's like yeah. no you you just discovered me bro i've been i've been doing yeah it. i've been here you know here. i always think stuff. about that with doc strash i got his book in my house and it's like rediscovering an american master i'm like how the hell you rediscover somebody who been here yeah been like here. doc doc strash been making dope print making work like you just so happened that he died and y'all saw it. Like, I you talked know. about this the other day with Charles White. You know, he had these big retrospectives that went to Chicago and there was the MoMA and all these other places. And I'm like, I told him, I said, man, I saw a retrospective of Charles White's work when I was in college in the 90s in a black college. I said, y'all just now seeing his work. I've been a Charles White stand. Mm-hmm. He'd been my art idol forever since I was mm-hmm. in college. That's been over twenty years. Did was he a heavy influence on you? Like even he did printmaking too. So like you know, man, like was he it is, like he one is and two? My, he is my guy. Yep, he is my number one art person. I always tell people I think him, Whitfield Lavelle, Margaret Burroughs, Elizabeth Catlett, Jacob Lawrence, and Gordon Parks kind of make up my tribe of artists that are like mm. my ancestral tribe that I like. Yeah. really influenced heavily by and love them. I mean, because if you look at a lot of my drawings, like you can see the direct inspiration from Redfield Lavelle and his work. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely with my bird work. Same thing with Charles White. It's like, you know, and I would also, for my printmaking work, I would say Charles White, Catlett Burroughs, but I would also give a big nod to Hale Woodrum as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of my background markings, like in the procession, are very similar to how he used to make marks. Yeah, that's good stuff. You, you now you get to be mentioned in that same breath, man. Like we, you know, we out there, man, We're trying to, trying to, <laughs> trying to make it to the next level, right? And even contemporary printmaking, I look at you and Delita, Latoya Hobbs, Ann Johnson, 
you know, it's a lot of people I look at that I'm like inspired by Steve Prince is a huge mm-hmm. inspiration. You know, it's a lot, it's a, a ton of great contemporary black prayer makers out here. Yeah. Yeah. We all connected somehow. <laughs> you know yeah, saying? we all we all kind of know each other. Yeah. Point, which we is awesome can... too. Yeah. Man, let them know where they can find you, man. Man, I'm on Instagram at Rucker Arts. And uh RashawnRucker.com is the website. So yeah, man, I'm like super excited to be back on studio noise, making some noise, back <laughs> on here with my family, back on here with the family of listeners that I love. Yeah, that's man, for you sure. Know how man. many people I didn't introduce studio noise to. <laughs> I got a lot we, of people appreciate it, to studio man. noise. I appreciate it, man. That's what we hear, man. Bro, I, I get that question a lot. Where can I find a great black art podcast? I'm like, oh, my boy got the one. <laughs> it might be the only one as far as I know. <laughs> That's the only one they need. The only one they need. We'll have everybody yeah. up there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it's Studio Noise, man. Voice of Black Art, real. That's what it's going to be, man. That's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the bank. Big shout out to my man Ruck. Big Ruck, Rashawn Rucker, for coming on the podcast, man. Congratulations on a great, amazing show you did put together. Y'all get on that list. So all my artists out there, keep it grinding. We had to come back to you. (laughs) And you can come back too, man. Get in that studio. Make sure you make some noise. To keep you up next week, we got Evita Tizano on Studio Noise. Give you more, more and more. I'll see y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast. <laughs>